This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. 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 Welcome, 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 welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on me. Jean McCarthy, and you're listening to The Bobble Hour. Well, hello, hello, everyone. This is episode two of a very special 10-part look back over the past decade of The Bobble Hour. And if you haven't listened to part one of this season, maybe pause here and go back to it because it'll really help set the mood for where everything started. For the next hour... We'll pay homage to the voices of those who joined us as guests and who shared their stories on the Bubble Hour. The early seasons were topic-driven, and each show featured multiple guests and multiple hosts sometimes, and they all weigh in on the theme of the week. So their conversations ranged from anonymity to advocacy, from spirituality to sober sex and everything in between. In season six, the format shifted to one-on-one interviews, and a guest shared their story more in-depth. Over the years, hundreds and hundreds of voices that affected millions of listeners. Well, where do we start? How do we even begin to say thank you? And how do we pay fitting tribute to the impact of all of our guests? In building this season, I went back through every moment of every episode, all 353 hours, listening again, creating transcripts, and harvesting Every single episode for nuggets and clips for this look back, gathering material for our new podcast, Tiny Bubbles, and also for our book of recovery inspirations called Take Good Care. So right down to a person, I can tell you with recent experience that each guest was moving. Every single one. Honestly, that's not an overstatement. Go back and listen to them again yourself, and I guarantee that you will hear something new every time you listen, because as we grow in our own recovery, we kind of ready ourselves to hear new lessons and new insights. In that light, it was quite profound to go back and listen to these shows again, because they really remind me of where I was at the time when they aired, whether I was listening as a listener or participating as a host. But they also, they kind of shine a light on where I am now and and how far I've come. And at the same time, I listen knowing that these voices from the past have also moved on. They've moved forward in their own recovery. Maybe some of them wish they could have a do-over or an update because, you know, it might be hard for them to listen to where they were at when they recorded their interview in the past because they're so much farther along now or things have changed so much for them. 
But I look at it this way, you guys. It's kind of like we have an old photo of you up on the fridge. And yes, you've changed your hairstyle 17 times already, but we're not going to take that photo down because that photo captures so much meaning and we treasure it. So it's kind of like when you visit grandma's house and she's still got that old picture of you up on the wall or some old drawing that you've done or some painting that you did in first year of art school or something and you kind of wish she'd put it away and yet it means something to her and it's significant for that reason. It feels impossible to do justice to the power of your stories, but in this episode, I offer to you an audio collage of stories and insight stitched together with love, a tapestry of wisdom and vulnerability and generosity of spirit. Before we begin, I want to start with a clip from 2012 season one when Ellie talks about walking into her first recovery meeting because I feel like that sets the tone. And from there, we'll start to hear voices from over the years and around the world. You will notice varying degrees of recording quality because the technology changed so much, as did our experience as producers and hosts. I hope you enjoy this look back. To my first, I think it was my first women's meeting, I can remember walking in into a recovery meeting and thinking that I was in the wrong place. Like, this has got, maybe this is the junior league or the PTA or something, because there's no way <laughs> that these women are out. I mean, even though I, it, it should have been so obvious to me, like, what the stigma that I had, all these, the checklists, like, can't be because I have XYZ in my life. I walk in mm-hmm. and there's a room full of self-admitted alcoholics that all have XYZ and great friendships and great sobriety and are able to live being their real selves. Like, the, every single thing that I had on my checklist, I found you know, in the in recovery, in 12-step meetings, and the thing that I was looking for at the bottom of a glass, I found, you know, in sobriety. I never really engaged in, in highly risky behavior. I wasn't a morning drinker. I, would, I didn't miss work. I did everything I was supposed to do. I made dinner. I cleaned up the dishes. I was an at-home drinker. If I went out, I could control my drinking because I knew the bottle of scotch was sitting on the counter when I got home, and I could drink the way I wanted to once I got home and wasn't going to be out driving anymore. I was definitely drinking to numb the feelings that I didn't want to feel, the feelings of loneliness, the feelings of failure, you know, in, in my marriage, the feelings of of not being able to control uh, what was going on, not being happy with what was happening, but not having any control over it. Deep down inside, I knew I was drinking too much. I knew that I had crossed the line. I knew that there was no definition by which I was a social drinker anymore. I was isolating and drinking. We had a family vacation. I had rented a house on the Cape, and the boys came down, and we were hanging out, and of course, you know, vacation. That was time to, you know, really drink. I was heading to the liquor store to get more booze because I needed more, and my oldest son, Luke, jumped in the car with me. And on the way to the liquor store, Luke said to me, Mom, the guys and I are really worried about you. We're worried about your drinking. You know, I just want to know what you want to do about it. And that was really the first time that we had said anything out loud. Now, you know, they were grown men. They were all in high school and college, and I never hid my drinking. I didn't put it in colored cups. I poured my scotch, and the rest of the world be damned. So they knew. And, and I'm not to this day, I'm not sure how Luke was elected the one to, to talk to me. But um, <laughs> poor Luke. And I was driving the car, and I remember 
clearly thinking, okay, I can go two ways with this. I can play it down like it's no big deal, or I can validate what my son is saying to me. And I said to Luke, I want you to understand that I hear what you're saying. I hear every word that you're saying to me. I don't know what I'm going to do about it, but I promise you I hear you and I am going to do something. I don't know what it is yet, but I am going to do something. I couldn't pretend I couldn't ignore it any longer. So what I did, like any good alcoholic, was for the next several months I tried some controlled drinking. And any of you out there who are struggling with alcoholism or think you might be an alcoholic, my suggestion is try some controlled drinking. Because if you're an alcoholic, it doesn't work. Number one, mm-hmm. you can't do it, not for any extended period of time. And number two, it sucks because a good alcoholic doesn't want to moderate their drinking. They want to drink the way they want to drink. And so I tried and failed and tried and failed and tried and failed. And finally, between Christmas and New Year's, I went to my first AA meeting, scared to death, of course. Several people came up to me, said, you know, we're glad you're here. Keep coming. And for the next six months, that was the only thing I did right. I didn't understand what they were talking about. I didn't get any of the lingo. I had no idea, and I don't believe in God, so the whole higher power thing. I thought, okay, I don't know about this. And so I struggled a lot the first six months trying to put it together, you know, in my head and in my heart, and and tried some more good controlled drinking. I finally came to the realization in May of 2010, and the only reason that I came to this moment of clarity was because I kept coming, I kept coming to AA meetings. I realized that everything that was wrong with my life, none of that was the truth. When you hear something that's truth, it hits you right between the eyes and takes your breath away. And I recognized on May 4th, 2010, that the truth was that my problem was that I was an alcoholic. And all of the rest of it were just symptoms. I was blaming my drinking on other people, places, and things. Well, if this happened to you, you'd drink. And if this happened to you, you know, I was justifying. I was blaming everyone but myself. I was not taking responsibility for my part in my alcoholism. And that was the night that I decided that I was done. And so May 5th, 2010 is my sobriety date. I told all of the guys that uh, I was going to AA and that I was quitting drinking and what that meant. And I said, you know, this means that if you ever see me with one drink, no matter what I say to you, I have relapsed because I can't drink. It means that I can never have another drink. And so I asked them, all, you know, grown men, to not have any alcohol in the house. And I said that would really help me because my house was where I drank. I wasn't a bar drinker. I came home and drank at home. So I had to make my home a safe place because that was what my pattern was. So I had no alcohol in the house at all for the first at least six months of sobriety. And I went to meetings um, almost every day, and I started to get to know people. I started to open up. I started to get real. I got a sponsor and started (laughs) doing some of the recovery work and started trying to get to the bottom because then once I was able to put the alcohol aside, once I was able to let my mind clear up a little bit, I realized that the alcohol, too, is but a symptom of a deeper 
issue that I had with myself, how I dealt with resentments, how I dealt with life on life's terms. The alcohol was a symptom as well. I was a full-blown alcoholic, but it was a symptom of, of, of deeper issues. I just, I just can't seem to get out of my own way. Like, I just couldn't figure it out. And I had no idea that, you know, drugs and alcohol might be getting in the way. And I always felt like I had so much potential. I had a moment of clarity. I was looking up at the ceiling, and I thought, you know, my life sucks so bad right now. I better do something about it now, because if I get it back on track, I'm not going to want to deal with this, because I'm pretty scared of what this is going to entail. I have no bad association of um, alcoholics. Some people are like, well, I, I didn't think I was an alcoholic because I just had this concept of what, you know, a, down, a bum down by the river. I didn't have that because I had people in my family and people in my circle who were sober. They were like shiny, happy, amazing people. I'm really, really lucky that I had that example. I had seen how it had changed my father, and I had seen how it had changed my relationship with him. I was kind of freaked out to do it, but I, I didn't think it was a bad thing to do. But I had these horrible feelings still of, what did I do? I just, I cratered my life. I had to stay in denial about what my life looked like now. Because if I had really checked in with, oh my God, I blew that career. Oh my God, I did that. Like if I had checked in with all that, it would have been too much to handle. Do the best you can every day. And that's what I loved about getting into program of recovery. I was given some directions on what to do, and I did them. Because I'm the good little girl, quote, unquote, even though I hadn't been, right? I was given suggestions, and I did them, you know. Someone ran up to me, one of my first um, recovery meetings said, oh, are you doing 90 and 90? And I was like, what? is that? I had no idea. And she's like, 90 meetings in 90 days, and if, if you want your misery back, you can have it at the end. And I'm like, what? 90, 90 meetings in 90 days, and if you want your misery back, you can have it. And I was like, I'll take that challenge. So I started keeping track. I, I, I did 90 meetings in 90 days, and I, I was not miserable after 90 days. Like, there were, like, certain experiments that I did, and they worked. I was told, you know, get some commitments where you actually are of service when you go to a meeting. And I did that, and I felt better. I did what was suggested, and I felt a lot better. I did counselling, and initially that didn't work hugely, but I think the thing with counselling is it takes time. Um, it was more like over time I started to reflect on things. I started, when I stopped drinking, you know, I got a lot of clarity and I could see things. I took time for me, um, which I'd never really done before. And I just, I really learned a lot about myself. So I think uncovering the reasons behind I never asked myself why I drank. But when I actually did start asking myself why I drank, I realized I was just burnt out. I was, you know, trying to please everyone, trying to do everything, trying to make sure everything was perfect, and it wasn't. And now I just slowed down a bit, and I was tired a lot of the time. I didn't take the time to even sleep properly, and the difference that made was unbelievable. It was small little changes, and really realizing what was driving my, my drinking really, really changed. I looked at my thinking around alcohol, and I suppose 
one of the big things that I learned was I learned a lot about alcohol. Okay, we all know, you know, drinking equals hangover equals not feeling great. But I, there was so much I didn't understand about it, the anxiety that it causes, the, the things that happen in your brain, that it's, that it's an alcohol, that it's a poison, that it's addictive, that all these various different things. I just I educated myself a lot about alcohol. And, that, uh, and once I knew why I was drinking and what it was doing to me, I could, I could notice the signs and then things really started to change for me. I mean, even things like triggers, like I never knew why Friday evening was such a, a trigger point for me. But then I realized, you know, it was the end of the week. I was tired. I was stressed. I was all of those things. And once I realized there was different ways to deal with that, it made a huge, huge difference to me. My rehab is a little bit different. I um I didn't I didn't choose to go to rehab. I didn't even know I was going to go there. I I blacked in there. I was finally at the end of my professional drinking career, getting to the part where I was hating it so much that I wanted to hurt myself. I I tried to quit so many times that and unsuccessfully. I was in a blackout state and the people I was with were just tired of dealing with my crap, so they loaded me up and took me to the hospital and took me to the emergency room. And when I woke up in the morning, I was in a nice, comfortable bed, and I had my own TV and breakfast and stuff. And I thought, well, this is neat. You know, I didn't feel like eating or anything, and I was really ill, but you no, know, my parents weren't there or anything. I live with my mom, because um, that's what happens when you drink a lot. Uh, <laughs> <love your> parents. <laughs> they gave me a shot in my butt of a whole bunch of vitamins and stuff and told me that I was in the emergency room and do I remember what had happened and where I was and... I didn't remember anything, and they told me that I'm going to be there for a couple of days. And then my mom called me, and she was hoping that I wasn't upset that they had taken me there, and I was actually kind of relieved. And they said that I'm going to be there for a while. I was really happy because it was kind of like a little vacation. But then when it kind of sunk in after a while, it was it was scary to think that I was going to be away from everything that I knew. It was the best thing that could have happened, and in all of my efforts to quit drinking, being in a in a facility where there are people taking care of you all the time was was the best way because I've been sober for 116 days I think and before then I couldn't even get 30 days together. I felt so well cared for. Everybody cared so much about me while I was there. Constantly, how are you? Not just the people that work there, but also the other patients too. I really felt like everybody cared. It was a really great experience. The follow up care was fantastic. And this is the only time in my life that I've actually been able to say to myself, I'm actually doing it this time. When before I was doing it for somebody else or saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this time I actually can feel it in my heart and I know that I'm done drinking. And I know that I'm, if I drink again, I'm going to make a permanent decision on a temporary feeling. Ever wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles. Little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the Bubble Hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk. 
so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building. Take Good Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by the Bubble Hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. Visit thebubblehour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take Good Care, recovery reading inspired by the Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. We don't talk enough. I don't think about the fact that this can be a very, very deadly disease. It's not just chronic um, disappointment and anger and heartache in families, but the fact that you actually can disappear, first as a human and then literally disappear. So, you know, having lost my father to the disease in a in a very sad way three years ago, it it is really real to me that he had alcohol-related dementia, and died of Corsicost, and that's about as bad as it can get with alcoholism. So it's a formidable opponent. I not to be alarmist, but just to say, if you think you're wrestling with it, do what you need to do to, to find some peace. I might have a drinking problem was when I was 30 years old. I'd recently gotten married. I was making dinner for my husband at the time while I watched TV. And in the course of cooking this meal, um, I drank an entire bottle of wine. And I remember pouring the last of it into my glass and just thinking, wow, that's, that's weird. I drank the whole bottle just cooking dinner. And I'm sure I went on to drink more that night. I can't remember. But that was my first kind of aha moment that I might have a, a problem. And not long after that night, Drinking a bottle of wine became a nightly habit. When I think about why, I think I'm a pretty high-strung person. I'd classify myself as a type A person, and I loved how I'd just be go, go, go all day, and I could have wine, and it would just help me turn off my brain and finally sink into a chair and relax. So I'd just come home from work, open up a bottle, and sip on it all evening long. And at first, that seemed like a harmless routine, but very quickly it became a scary habit. I found myself constantly plotting how to get that nightly bottle into the house. My husband likes to drink, but he isn't an alcoholic. He can take it or leave it on most nights, and when he drinks at home, he usually just has a beer or two. But I had to have that entire bottle to myself. So I started stopping at a different store every night on the way home from work. So it was a gas station, other times a grocery store. And then sometimes I found myself drinking the bottle and still wanting more, so I made sure I had a backup bottle around. In the later years, I started going to Trader Joe's on my lunch hour once a week and buying a case of wine that I'd keep stashed in my trunk so I'd never have that problem of running out. And the empties were another problem. Would only take out our recycling once or twice a week, and four or five or six wine bottles looks like a lot in a small recycling bin. So I started hiding some of the bottles in my closet, and then I would throw them away in a public trash can on the way to work. My husband knew I was drinking too much, but I put a lot of energy into hiding just how much from him. So this went on night after night after night for years, and the only breaks I took were during my pregnancies. And I hated being pregnant because I couldn't drink. I'd drink when I was happy, when I was sad, when I was sick, or when I was hungover. It didn't matter. There were no nights off. And bad things started to happen. One night, I drove drunk to the store to buy more wine. On the way home, I swerved and crashed into a curb, and my airbags went off. 
I left the car and ran a mile home and spent a sick, panicky night worrying about what I had done and wondering if the police were about to come arrest me. The next day, my husband went to look for my car, but it was gone. I called the police to ask about it, and they told me it was being held for hit and run. And for a horrible moment, I thought I might have hit a person. It turns out I hit another car, but I was too blacked out to know it, a parked car. We traveled to visit some family and friends over the holidays, and I drank every night, and I had a miserable vacation because of it. What I realized during those days that, quite simply, I won't have a happy life if I continue to drink. Quitting will be the toughest thing I've ever done, but if it might put me on a path to a happier place, I know I owe it to myself and my family to try. really bad for me and you know and I heard at a recovery meeting once that things got so bad that my actions were moving in such a way that they were moving so quick I couldn't lower my standards quick enough and that's really kind of how I felt at the end it was a bad low bottom for me I had legal a DUI legal situation my children didn't want to be around me they wanted to be with their father you know, I crossed that line from uh, emotional addiction and holding it together to being physically addicted and things were falling apart. And with a little help, my family, it, it, it was a full-blown intervention, and I can remember the sigh of relief because finally it was like it was out of my control. I didn't actually have to ask for help. It was being pushed on me just a little bit. I mean, I could have pushed back, but I was so desperate at that point that I was so willing. And, you know, and I say this, that at that point, my drinking had gotten me to the point that I felt like I had fallen underneath ice and I could see where the opening was to take a breath and I just couldn't get there. What I really needed was somebody to reach in underwater and grab me and pull me up. And that's what it was. And that's exactly what happened. I've required so much help over the past year and a half. And I've immersed myself into sort of the recovery community. You know, I looked at it like my job was to read about recovery, do the work on recovery. And I felt like I just graduated and was the valedictorian. (laughs) And you've talked about that toolbox. You know, I have this super-duper model. Take a look at the tools that I've got. There goes the cockiness. And what led me to my relapsing very quickly was Somebody who is um, very much a supporter of me getting sober kind of changed their toot, and it really wasn't working out for, for this person, um, me being all sober and all. So it was very destructive. There, there was something that they didn't teach me in all the hours of class that I sat through was that not everybody is a fan of you being sober. You know, it was a matter of, of somebody saying something, you know, yeah, you can go down there. You can fool everybody. You can't fool me. You know, you, you chose booze over your kids, and you're going to be nothing but a drunk in the end. That was all it took, and I started drinking. My disease picked up right where it was. The arsenal of tools that I did have prepared me to quickly get back and say, I'm not willing to to give it all up. And that whole idea of the expectation that I could kind of come back home and, you know, live my life exactly as I was, just minus the alcohol, had to take on a very new meaning. It's on me. My program is my program. Mm-hmm. So I had a friend that was successfully leading a sober life and was leading a life that kind of revolved around recovery. 
And at first I said, oh, God, please don't make me turn into that person. <laughs> and, in, <laughs> you know, of, oh, this is great. And I thought, but, you know, what I'm doing is not working. So I'm just going to jump on. And that's what I did. I went to meetings, and if I didn't like that meeting, I went to another meeting. I developed my own network of people, and I changed the people that I hung out with. It's not, it wasn't realistic for me to and do the same things with the same people because the people that I used to associate with on a daily basis drank like I did. Mm-hmm. And so to think that just me taking away the alcohol was going to solve the problem wasn't going to improve my environment. Of, of maintaining my sobriety. It was changing a lot. It was meeting new people. It was saying, okay, I've, now I've got to take the tools that I've learned there and now put it into real life action. I'd say I think there's, there's two things um, that you got to do to quit drinking. Um, number one, you got to break through denial. You know, I, I think that's summed up by virgins don't take pregnancy tests. Um, <laughs> I think that if, if you think you might have a problem, you do. If you're wondering if you can moderate, you can't. If you've ever Googled, am I an alcoholic? Uh, Google ought to just give you three words. Yes, you are. You got to get through that. And then you got to realize that what you have to do is learn to tolerate discomfort. Because, you know, part of our drinking is we're taking this drug to get rid of discomfort of whatever we're feeling. Realizing that you're going to feel discomfort and almost detaching yourself from it, you know, put it in a little bubble or balloon and look at it almost floating in front of you that and realize, hey, I'm feeling discomfort. It's a fleeting emotion I'm having. It's not forever. This is what discomfort feels like. That allows you to get through that discomfort of sobriety, but also it's prepared me to deal with life. You know, people die, bad things happen. There are days when you're going to feel really sad And you learn to just ride with the emotion and not let it consume you. It's helped with the cravings, too, when you realize they're just fleeting thoughts coming through your mind. They come and go. And I I, I think for me, those were kind of the two key things. I'm really glad I went. The point of rehab is to teach you you can deal with all the emotions sober. It's a safe place. No alcohol there. You know, it's not an option. So I dealt with fear and sadness and joy and all these range of emotions there, sober. I was able to do it. It was a lot of work. They gave us a packet of homework to do during downtime that helped you explore your feelings, problems, and issues. We would read them in a group and process them and get feedback, so that was helpful. Spent six hours a day in group classes or meetings. We had chores we had to do. I think that was the teacher's humility, I guess. The kitchen was the worst one. <laughs> um, but we all pitched in as a group to work together. There was some drama. One time I called my sponsor and wanted to go home and told her, you know, I can't deal with this. You know, she said, no, you need to stay. And I said, okay. And did it begrudgingly, but I did it. And the drama got better. 
missed home. I tried to think about it, you know, in the long term, grand scheme of things, that 21 days is not such a long time. Mm-hmm. It gave me time to focus on me, my sobriety, without having the everyday stressors of life. I had tried to get sober on my own for several years. I wasn't able to do it, and so that helped me to have that time away and time to focus on me. We actually have a couple of written submissions from people who didn't want to be live on the show. I would like to read what she said because I think it's very moving. She says, I think there is a huge stigma around being an alcoholic and a double standard in regards to women, men, and alcohol. My husband hates to see a woman get drunk but does not mind seeing a man who is drunk. When people think of a typical alcoholic, they picture a man. Probably women hide their drinking more than men do. When I was actively drinking, I did not call myself an alcoholic. I just thought I had a drinking problem, but I did not tell people I had a problem. I knew I needed to stop drinking altogether someday in the future, but I felt very alone in my addiction. I felt guilt, fear, and shame. I did not really realize that I have a disease. I hid my drinking very well, and in fact, most of my friends now think I just stopped drinking alcohol to feel healthy, but they do not know I call myself an alcoholic. One friend even said to me one day, you stopped drinking, but you're not an alcoholic. I didn't correct her. I think there is a huge negative stigma around the word word alcoholic. The interesting thing is that I'm actually close to several people who've gotten sober. I attend 12-step meetings, and and I knew this while I was drinking, and I never reached out to them. I assumed that somehow their drinking was never as bad as mine. I felt very ashamed, and this shame made me hide. I did not regard my sober friends as bad, weak, or flawed for having a drinking problem. In fact, I saw the sober people around me as strong and courageous. However, I did not reach out to them while I was actively drinking. It wasn't until I hit my bottom and got sober that I realized that I am an alcoholic and I have reached out to my sober friends. Today, I still don't label myself an alcoholic to most people. However, if anyone asked me why I no longer drink, and if he or she were interested in sobriety, I would certainly reach out my hand to help that person and share my experience, strength, and hope. What helped me the most while I was actively drinking was reading Mommy Doesn't Drink Here Anymore by Rachel Brownell. I finally identified with somebody else when I read her story, and that was very powerful. I think the more we normalize and inform the public about women's alcoholism, the better. What was interesting was that, like, I was very clever in my drinking. It's just just the amount of effort that I put into managing to get extra drinks, hide it. You know, the huge kind of, like, sometimes I look back and go, my God, that was a master plan in terms of hiding it, buying it, getting an extra round in, all the little clever little things that I did to get drink in or whatever, hide it, whatever it had to be. Now I kind of use that the other way. When I'm out at a social event and I don't want to drink and I'm not making a big song and dance about it, I use those tactics, you know, that cleverness to, to get around it. And it's amazing what you can get away with. I got through a whole Christmas party, an office Christmas party, which is a really boozy affair, without drinking and people never noticed. And so I was kind of delighted with myself in the sense of being able to flip that around and use that sort of, you know, the, the cunningness of, you know, of it all um, to actually to help my sobriety. Sometimes people will say, 
you know, I had more fun, I have more fun in recovery or things got really bad. So their perspective on drinking was very negative. I think for me, I tended to romanticize my drinking days. So it's been mm-hmm. hard for me to find things in sobriety that feel as exciting as those times in my life. But I, I actually try to not compare my drinking life to my sober life. They're almost separate existences. When I compare them, I really get confused and muddled up because my life was highs and lows when I was drinking, and my life is more mm-hmm. somewhere in the middle now, and that can feel boring um, or mundane yeah. for some people. And at times, I've felt less spontaneous. And so there are pieces of it that you still have to kind of work on, things that are interesting to you that you want to learn about. And, yeah, fun is completely changed. I would 100% agree with that. But it has to. It has to. And the gratitude for noticing the small things that we wouldn't have noticed before. You are not alone. And it's very easy to feel like that, especially, for example, where I live, which is super remote. And if I can do it, anyone can, (laughs) I would definitely uh, look things up online. And it's so much stuff out there now. And obviously, of course, Bubble Hour, my my saving grace. But I think the most, most important one is that you're not alone, even if you feel like you are. Together we can do it. I've become a very much less reactive person. You know, when I was drinking, I I was about mm, 55% a-hole most of the time. And, you know, I think I've gotten that percentage down to about 5%. Because um, <laughs> I, I... That's pretty good, Pete. <laughs> it, it's allowed me to listen a lot more than I talk. There's a saying that God gave you two ears and only one mouth for a reason. You know, if you're interested in people and you listen to people, you you really never want for conversation because the vast majority of the world just wants to talk about themselves. And if you're good at saying, "Uh uh-huh, oh, really? (laughs) Um, You could talk for hours. And, you know, even if you don't like them, you can just think of yourself as like an alien anthropologist studying a weird creature. Have fun with it. I had a really good and great life when I was when I was even still drinking. And um, a lot of things shifted for me, but it, it really it was this aspect of my life that I felt like it was slowly going to kill me. And I, I mean mm-hmm. that literally and figuratively in that um, my, I could still be an okay person if I was drinking, and, but I knew deep down that if I quit, mm-hmm. then it would be a million times better. I'm so grateful to be sober. I love being sober. I love the the camaraderie. I love when I meet people and like they kind of are 
speaking kind of the language, and I'll be like, are you in the secret club? <laughs> and they're like, and if they say yes, I'm like, they'll kind of look at me, and if they say no, I'm like, oh, never mind. Others find the message of recovery we champion on the Bubble Hour. Plus, get access to the entire backlist ad-free by joining us on Patreon. Patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available, as well as the cost to make new content like our spin-off podcast, Tiny Bubbles. Become a Bubble Hour patron today at patreon.com slash thebubblehour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope. When I started drinking, it was because it was um, my symbol of adulthood. So when I turned 30, I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to be 30 tomorrow. I need to go get oil of Olay because I was going to be <laughs> old as a, as a <laughs> So I, I, I had these, these things that were like symbols of this is the thing that's going to say that I am now this person. So oil of Olay was my I'm now in my 30s. And I think alcohol came right along with that. I know that I have a compulsion around sugar. And I think that in, in many ways, alcohol was a path to it. And mm-hmm. so even when I started drinking, it was, it was probably as much about the sugar as it was about the alcohol. And so every Friday night, I would have a six pack of Smirnoff ice and a family pack of Twizzlers. And I would buy um, the family pack that had the 10% more free on it so that I could have 17.6 ounces of licorice every Friday. <laughs> and, and I would like go out and find the, the 10% more free. I'd leave and go to another store. And so by then I had met my current partner, Brad. And one night he was there and he said, I can't believe that you eat all of those Twizzlers every Friday. And I didn't really like feeling judged. I thought, gosh, I don't know if I want him to know that I'm eating the whole family pack. And, and we didn't live together at the time. So I continued to do it every Friday. Then one night, a health class from a local college was on, on our public access network. And this teacher said, if you're hiding it from other people, if nobody knows that you do it as much as you do, then you're probably an addict. And I thought, oh my God, I'm addicted to Twizzlers. (laughs) (laughs) I decided that I would start eating one ounce at a time. I was going to moderate the Twizzlers. An ounce was three Twizzlers. I thought, okay, I'll put them in snack bags. So I bought all these snack bags, and I put three Twizzlers in each one, and I sealed them up and put them in my pantry. And I had eye surgery, and I went to bed that night. And the next morning, I got up, and I slipped on something. I thought, what was that? And I looked, and the entire family room floor was littered with with snack bags. I had woken up in an anesthesia-induced haze, eaten all the Twizzlers. And so I was like, okay, I have a problem. I've got to quit. I've got to quit Twizzlers. And so I quit. Cold turkey, quit Twizzlers. And what's interesting is when I quit the Twizzlers, I didn't want the Smirnoff ice. I stopped the Twizzlers and Smirnoff ice. I lost 12 pounds in less than a month without making any other changes. I work in higher education. I was in charge of the student athletes at the time. And one of our basketball players died. 18-year-old kid just had a heart condition and, and died. And it was horrible. And on the way home that night, I thought, I've got to have a drink. First time I can remember thinking, I need to drink in order to cure what ails me. I was standing at the store that night looking at alcohol, and this old man said, I don't know what you're looking for, but whatever's up there is not going to fix you. 
And I think about that now and I get goosebumps. That was probably the beginning of my drinking to feel better. You know, some people drink to feel good, but once you start drinking to feel better, you're probably on on a path to a problem. So I always drank by myself. I can probably count on one hand the number of people in my life that have ever seen me drink. I drank alone. I drank before events and after events, but I was never one to drink in public because I didn't want people to associate my drinking with my behavior. If I was crazy, it was crazy because I was crazy, not because I was drunk. And it's <laughs> difficult to see the problem when, you're, when you drink alone. You know, like when, when you're drinking by yourself from the beginning, I think it's harder to see whether or not it's a problem. And so when I finally started asking myself, is this becoming a problem? I did the online surveys. And when I got to the question of, do you drink alone? I thought, of course I drink alone. I live alone. Who else am I supposed to drink with? I look like myself. And so I always just question. I thought it was such a ridiculous question. As a result, I, I like the shame thing was really delayed for me because I drank alone. And like I can remember doing an online health risk assessment at work, and they asked, how many drinks do you have a week? And I wrote 28. You got a score on this this assessment. And I had a, like a 98. And then after I said I had 28 drinks a week, it dropped it to like a 72. I went to this meeting with all of my coworkers and I told them that my score dropped to a 72 when I said I had 28 drinks a week. And, and what was funny was that their reaction was, you told the truth. Nobody yeah. said you have 28 drinks a week. I started thinking, then I don't feel like I have control. That was the bigger issue, was that I don't really feel like I'm in control here. So I talked to the benefits lady at my job, because like I said, I'm still in shameless territory. And I said, I wanted to know if you have a drinking cessation program, like your smoking cessation program. And she looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, well, you know, we we do these things for tobacco. Do we do them for alcohol? And she said, well, drinking is really a mental health problem. And so you'd want to go to your employee assistance program. And that was when, when I started feeling stigma. And that's when I started worrying about shame. And so I thought, you know, maybe I do have a problem here. And I had been looking at sobriety memoirs, but I hadn't found one that I wanted to read because they were all stories about mothers. And I came across Caroline Knapp's uh, Drinking a Love Story. And I read it and I thought, oh my God, this is, my story. And so like I'm highlighting in my Kindle as I read it, everything that related to me, everything that seemed familiar. And as I looked at it, I like highlighted everything except for and and the. Like the entire <laughs> book was <laughs> So I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I've got to stop. And I met this lady. I'm, so I'm standing out in my front yard. This woman came over and she said, my name is Judy. I live next door. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's so nice to meet you. And she said, I'm 70 years old and I got sober 27 years ago in AA. And I thought to myself, I'm 43 and in 27 years, I'll be 70. And so maybe if I stop drinking now, I can be this lady when I grow up. Accepting doesn't mean, okay, I'm going to accept my life just as it is like this. I'm accepting it as it is. Now what do I want to do? What are the things I can change that I can change? Okay, well, here's where you are. Let's get clear on where you are. And what do you want? What do you want to do? And what small step can you take towards it? 
you know, we like grand stuff, you know, addicts and alcoholics, we want big dramatic changes and yeah. It's like, you know what? I think that in in this part of recovery when it feels like we are living our authentic life, it's like what's the small step I can take? And to be having some patience and acceptance with where we are doesn't mean we're going to stay there, but it means we can be fully present to that moment that's going to take us to the next moment. I need to know myself without alcohol. I didn't know myself without alcohol. I couldn't keep a promise. I couldn't go into an evening and say I won't have anything to drink and keep the promise. I couldn't do it. So um, crying alcohol and staying in that place is, is a good place for me. Once I got past, say, the first 90 days or so, was this feeling that I was less than or other than everybody. You know, everybody else could have a drink and enjoy it, and here I am with my club soda, you know. Boy, am I a loser. It seems like after a year, I kind of transitioned from I'm less than to hey, I'm better than. Uh, I don't need a drug to have a great time. And, you know, at the end of a party, I'm still smart. (laughs) I I hope I don't sound like an ego monster when I say that, but that was kind of an important thing for me because it it was tough uh, having, you know, that feeling that you're, you're less than. I mean, I remember going to a wedding Pretty early on, it was a pretty fancy-dancy, you know, wedding in a ritzy place. At our table was a guy who was like, he owns a mansion and owns a business, and he was flying to give three speeches in New York City the next day. And I thought, my God, am I a loser? (laughs) He's there sipping his wine, and I'm just having my soda here. And I realize now, like, that, that was a ridiculous attitude on my part. You know, but it took me a long time. My God, I wish it all could have happened in 30 days. But I mean, it took months and months and months and a year and so forth to sort of get there. I I do my thing and I'm good with it. You know, I'm happy with me right now. I got out in the nick of time as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. You know, you know, and I know there's stigma uh, attached to this. Having, you know, developed the problem myself, it certainly allows me to empathize with people a heck of a lot more than I ever used to. Number one, it it has shocked me how alike we all are. You, you had that episode where you led, read letters from Charles, and um, I thought, my God, that could be me. And you interviewed Shelley, and I listened to some things, and she said, and it's like, that could be me. Yeah, And I, I yeah. almost thought you could put my interview together by just editing out snippets from everyone you've done before. <laughs> uh, I think that may be true for a lot of us. 
But, you know, the thing is, it's funny that we never get tired of, of hearing it because we all hear ourselves in it. And the details might be different, but the core truth behind it is the same. We were hurting. We tried something that we thought would help. It ended up making it worse, and we got addicted to it. And so we had to leave that behind and then also find a new way to deal with the original problem anyway. And then things got better. I mean, really, that is the hero's journey of every person in recovery. The the details change, it's over, but at the core of every story, it kind of all comes back to that because that's the human essence of it all. Because people are so interesting, right? I mean, it's not as if you're just being a people pleaser by listening to them. They're really, they really are just amazing. Every person has a story. all for this time my friends coming up on the next episode we'll hear more from each of our show's hosts including me thanks for listening please be so kind as to give us a big gold juicy five-star review and please be sure to subscribe to our new podcast tiny bubbles and hey have you heard about our new book of recovery readings it's called take good care You'll find it on Amazon by me, Jean McCarthy, right next to my other recovery books. If you'd like to support the show, please join us over on Patreon. Your pledge there gives you access to full episodes of The Backlist ad-free. And you know what? It does take quite a lot to maintain and manage a decade worth of recovery resources. Well, we all know it's a worthwhile effort, right? So your help is definitely greatly appreciated. I will catch you when you come back for more. And until then, take good care. I own it, I did that Not proud, but that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free From the power Weakness had on me In a dark corner is where shame It just stays in wait there to rob you of your pride. Turn the light on, turn the light on, you can shine. When you see old, I did that. Not proud that that was me, and when I face it, I take back a little dignity. I'm not looking for excuses, I just want to be free. Just want to be free from the power of oh, your